Artificial intelligence is one of the great buzzwords of our time, but there's substance behind it in some quarters. And today we're talking with somebody who's actually designing AI systems. I'm Michael Krigsman, an industry analyst and the host of CXO Talk, and we are on episode number 257 of CXO Talk. Before we dive in, I want to thank Livestream for providing our video streaming infrastructure. Those guys are great. And if you go to livestream.com slash CXO Talk, they'll actually give you a discount on their plans. Right now, there's a tweet chat happening on Twitter using the hashtag CXO Talk. Go there and you can ask your questions of our amazing guest. And our amazing guest today is Chayton Dubey, who is the CEO of IPsoft. Chayton Dubey, how are you? And thank you for joining us on CXO Talk. Thank you very much, Michael, for having me. It's a privilege to be on this talk. Well, we are privileged and um, just personally thrilled. I've been so excited about this show. Uh, so Chayton, tell us about IPsoft, please. IPsoft is a digital labor company servicing one in every 10 Fortune 1000 company. So we provide digital labor solutions to these companies, be it autonomic, be it cognitive, be it analytic. That's what IPsoft does. And so when you say digital labor, um, what does that mean? Would you elaborate on that, please? We feel that the boundaries between carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and silicon, gallium, arsenide, and steel are getting progressively diffused. We feel that the new workforce that is entering uh, the providing some significant ROI and NPS score benefits to our customers is digital. And humans are now getting elevated into a capacity of further being the people that train and teach this new digital workforce. And that's a shift we are seeing in the industry. So using machines to complement the labor of of people. Exactly. Now, what are some of the contexts? I know, for example, call centers is very important to to your business. Yeah. So this is the adoption that we have seen is being very rapid in particularly in the finance and insurance verticals. We have seen that insurance, for instance, if you take top six out of the six in the insurance company are going with digital solutions provided by us. If you look at the banking vertical, you find the seven out of the top 10 are going with and digital. And, and what are they doing with there? Because they are the banking, for instance, vertical is very aware of how their low asset, high friction, high margin areas are getting progressively under attack from the digital attackers that are coming with very little assets, but um, providing equivalent solutions. And so the big banks are reacting with an aggressive strategy as opposed to a defensive posturing, they are building up their own digital portfolio. And we find that VFSI is a vertical where the adoption has been very rapid. Following quickly on the tails of that, the healthcare industry is also rapidly starting to adopt digital labor solutions for improving both the patient and the caregiver experiences. And retail is obviously uh, following trend with what you have seen in the marketplace in a big way. Now, your product is called Amelia, and maybe uh, would you share with us, as you were building Amelia, well, tell us what 
is Amelia? And what were the design goals? Because I really want to drill down into when you're designing an AI system, what are some of the, the considerations that, that have to go into it? So Amelia is the most human AI agent that you would find in the industry today. Design goals for us were continuously over the past uh, 19 years, the question, what Turing had asked when he had said, I propose for you to consider the question, can machines think? That question has haunted us. And so we have been, our design goal has always been, can we make thinking machines possible? And what it would take to build a re real human equivalent thinking machine? Does it need to have emulation of all the different aspects of neocortical activities? Or is there a way that we can try and imitate that? And that's been always the guiding force of Amelia's design. So you're trying to build a, in, in essence, you're, you're trying to build a system that is indistinguishable from a human, from a human during, during interactions. Is that, a, is that an accurate way of saying it? Absolutely. Okay, so then, okay, so that is the goal. And so when you're designing such a system, what are the considerations or the factors that you think about? Now, that's a great uh, question, because I think when you want to deliver certain, what the industry is really asking for is good net promoter scores. The number of promoters minus the number of detractors should be in the positive. Number of people who want an experience with a chatbot versus the number of people who don't want, who want to be taken to a human should be more people saying, I want to talk to an intelligent agent. You almost always find in the industry a dissatisfaction with chatbots because they're basically not intelligent. And you find the number of promoters are less than the number of detractors who want to be taken away from a chatbot onto a human agent to servicing them. And so our goal principles were we want positive net promoter scores. We want people to be wanting to talk to an intelligent agent. We want the intelligent agent to be able to solve problems for the customers. And to do that, I think you have to ask yourself, what does it take to be able to deliver these intelligent solutions? Well, first is that you have to be able to semantically understand what a customer is saying. Right now, what we are, Michael and I are discussing is, going, is being vectored into the entire audience of uh, this premier talk and CXO talks into their semantic, into their hippocampus, semantic store of all facts. It's also registering into the episodic event-based memory, which is all the collection of other CXO talks that they have seen and all the other supporting documentation that they have seen around the topic of cognitive and artificial intelligence. It's also going into their process and analytic and affective memory. They have an emotional connection to this topic about the Im implications of this cognitive and digital labor solutions on the social and demographic and the neo-Luddite movements, all of those things. And only then is the audience right now compiling a thought saying, huh, this is what would be required for us to be able to deliver a better solution that meets the demands of the industry. That's a real neocortical emulation, as opposed to a typical chatbot, which is bucketing what you're saying into one of the IVR-esque buckets, 
and providing you a canned response. So again, how do you think about attacking this problem? So if you're designing such a system, which you are, how do, how do you break it up? How do you how do you think about it? Well, I think I think you uh, you know I will take you back a little bit, uh, Michael. Into uh, I walked into um, some 19 years ago. I was uh, an assistant faculty at NYU, and I was um, I walked into my advisor at that time, Professor Dennis Shasha's office, and I said, Professor, we are using deterministic finite state machines to clone system engineers' brains, and given a couple of summers, we should be able to extend this to general intelligence and domain-specific intelligence. And his reaction, which I still remember, was that, ah, fool, don't you know that even the father of artificial intelligence, John McCarthy, gave up on the problem, stating that it turned out to be a lot harder than anticipated. So you're off profound ignorance about the challenges that lay ahead, and you set sail to creating the most human AI that could reach the ever-elusive curing horizon of indistinguishable from human intellect. And uh, it's not been a couple of summers, it's been 19 summers of trying to emulate the human thinking and human behaviors that can deliver the same level, if not superior level of customer satisfaction that you get in talking to a human agent. We have an interesting comment from Colin Crook on Twitter, who says, empathy-driven developers. And I, and I know that this notion of empathy is one of the components that's important to you. So maybe you can uh, speak a little bit about that aspect of it. That's, uh, who was that who asked the question, Michael? That is Colin Crook. And it's a very insightful question. Exactly. I would agree it's an insightful question. Thank you, Colin. I think McKinsey had a research on this that says, interestingly, that you get better net promoter scores by more than the logical component of the solution that a customer agent is providing you, it is dependent on the emotional connection that the agent that is servicing you, this customer has. And so the emotional connect, and how do we achieve that, Colin? How do we achieve that emotional connection with the customers uh, that are being serviced? In these cases, you need to be able to make sure that you have EQ vectors. EQ vectors need to be tailing the exact EQ vector that a customer has. And the integration of EQ vectors is the mood vector, so which is not as inflective or as uh, seasonal, but you take the integration and the mood vector of the cognitive agent needs to be tailing that of the customer that is being serviced. And then integration of all mood vectors is the personality vectors. Today, to answer your question with the specifics, the PAD OCC models exist in three-dimensional modeling of all of the emotional, mood, and personality vectors that give you the ability to make your agent behave in a human-like way, having an affective reaction, an empathetic reaction to the person that it is uh, serving. And the person that is being serviced Sentimental analysis, both in the not just the textual, but also the inflected nature of their tone and tonalities, allows us to be able to do that in a, with a high degree of precision. So, just to recap what you're just saying, you have the emotional, mood, and personality vectors, as you described it, that must then mirror those states. Can we call them states of mind or states of being? 
in, in the customer and then somehow reflect back. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that that's what's required to be able to deliver the promise of affective computing. Today makes, Michael, that and Colin that possible. And it's uh, to be realized in the industry today. So that means that as the in real time, as the I'm assuming this is what it means. I don't mean to uh, put words in your mouth. I'm assuming that it means that in real time, as the customer is interacting with that computer agent, it means the agent needs to be interpreting uh, the language, making assumptions about uh, about sentiment and about mood, and then trying to also abstract, okay, given these signals, who is this person and what type of personality do they have? Very well articulated. That's exactly right. That, um, And I'll tell you practical examples because it's of uh, interest to you and uh, Colin and uh, your audience that you, the implications, the largest mobile telco carrier, for instance, uses that. So, you know, today there are over few hundred of these uh, different global 2000 companies that are employing digital agents. And I can tell you that the largest mobile carrier uses this to see that these are the current sentiments that we are seeing in interaction with the customer. This indicates, oh, the customer uh, sentiment score is rising up to a certain level where it is exceeding the top um, ceiling. This is potentially a good opportunity for us to upsell this customer. And it also uses it for the fact that, ah, the customer sentiment and the score that we are registering in our interaction dynamically with the customer is falling, is falling beneath a certain floor. And in that case, a trap is made to be able to automatically say, we need to be able to send this customer over to another human agent or a supervisor that can intervene here. So you see that there is a practical implication of this, and it's commonplace today being used in the, in the industry. Well, this raises an interesting question. The timing is perfect because Mike Prest on Twitter comments, he says that Elon Musk warns that AI is, quote, a fundamental existential risk for human civilization. As an AI designer, how do you think about the ethics of all of this? Mike, I struggle with it every day. I walked down my son just last month to uh, the front gates of um, where I live, and I was actually uh, to pick up the paper from the right close to the gates. And my, my son Montgomery turned to me and he asked, Dad, are you going to be a robo dad? And you struggle with that. You definitely, and there's, there's two schools of thought, obviously. There's the utopian school of thought that this is going to cure everything from cancer to eradicate poverty and cure hunger and water problems. And the other is the dystopian school of thought, the Musk and Hawking club that believes that this is going to be the final invention known to man. I'm obviously a subscriber to the utopian school of thought. But I would say, while there's an active debate going on in the community between the utopian, is it going to be a good thing or is it going to be a bad thing? I ask a third question. Do we have a choice? Is time tide going to wait for anyone? And I will ask you, will time tide or technology wait for anyone? I've yet to meet a single CEO, and I've told you that we, seven out of the top 10 banks and CEOs, I've had the privilege of interacting with them. I've yet to meet a single one that says, oh, yes, we can drive about 45% uh, benefit to our uh, shareholders 
and we can actually get improved customer experience and we can do do this kind of an operational efficiency. Yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm going to walk away from it. So it is continuously being proven in the history that technology will move forward. And some may argue, as Mike, you did, that it, we have a tiger by the tail, but we are going to move into this thing. I ask, I propose for us to really, the thinking minds that are gathered on this talk, to be asking themselves, it's going to come. How do we prepare best for it so that we can, the man can thrive in this world where digital laborers take care of all mundane chores that we are today pulled down because of, and we can have man elevate himself to higher forms of creative expression. And that's the thought I subscribe to. Look, it is equivalent to, and I've been told mathematicians are too brutally honest sometimes, it, it's, it's, it's one of the digital tsunamis that is coming. We can no longer sit on the beaches of uh, Phuket and think it's sunny when a 100-foot wall of water is moving towards us. We need to make sure, but this is a very benign tsunami, I would say, because it's going to take care of all the mundane chores that occupy you. Your creative brain, Mike, at this point, even you, use only 15% of your creative brain. Creative brain, yeah? What a colossal waste to have such a powerful neocortex that is only used 15% in creative expression on any given day. Man should move to the... When this comes, all those mundane chores will be taken care of and we'll have a very nice, the most faithful servant known to mankind will take care of all those routine tasks. But man must move to higher ground. Man must move to higher grounds of creative expression. Man must retool their skills. Not, we don't want to fight the machines on their playing field. We want the machines to take care of the road work while man moves into the domains of creative expression where man reigns supreme and will continue to reign supreme in the foreseeable and even distant future. As a person who's been researching this for over a couple of decades, I can tell you that creative expression, the kind that you're not going to have many Michael Kriegsman and, and the mics that we are talking to who are asking these intelligent questions appear right now into the domains of active reasoning and others in, in digital form. That's where man reigns supreme. So to, uh, so to summarize what you're saying, that machines, AI systems, when I say machines, let's, it's, it's actually the software. Uh, we had the hardware and enables that, but, but uh, machines will enable this mundane labor to, well, we'll be able to, to push some of that mundane labor onto machines, therefore enabling us human beings to spend a greater proportion of our time engage in more creative, important activities. Is that a correct summary? Absolutely. And I can tell you, Michael, governments are wrestling with it. And forward-thinking governments are really starting to think about it. And I can tell you personally that the, um, the House of Commons, which is uh, in England, which has given us the privilege to invite us frequently to address them on this topic, uh, their forward-thinking members of the parliament there are wrestling with, should we restart a vocational training program that can make our citizens in England retool their skills uh, to other forms of creative expression, uh, rather than engaging in the mundane chores that are going to be taken over by 
uh, these automated agents, digital agents. The Palais du Luxembourg in France, in Senate, we were invited uh, by the ex-Prime Minister Raffarin to address similar topics on that what is going to happen, what, what do we need to do? And these are forward-thinking, proactive countries, not just companies, that are starting to prepare. And I continue to believe that man will. Uh, forward thinkers are always saying, how do we thrive in this new world order that is coming? Not be afraid of it, but embrace it. And so they are taking in Palais de Luxembourg a conversation centered around what does man do? Should we move to uh, redistribution? Uh, different ways of... Uh, in the Nordics, we have had conversation about viable incomes. Um, even, even the prime ministers in India and their commerce secretaries, I can tell you, are very actively promoting a digital India and working at promoting such solutions across the workforce, not just for the benefit of its citizens, but also for retooling. Digital export is going to be the biggest exporter. So these countries want to become the digital exporters of such cognitive technologies in future, as opposed to being exporters of wage arbitrage-centric solutions. Clearly, these uh, th this set of policy and ethical and social issues is something that you have given a lot of thought to. So what about the, the government policy implications? It's such a such a very thorny issue with so many different constituency groups and so much fear. So, so what recommendations or thoughts do you have for for the government in, in terms of the the policy implications? How to manage this? I think I think the government has got two things that they are most of the governments that we have had been invited to be it um, be it as I said in England or in the uh, aspects of Nordics in uh, in. Um, in India, I have discussions with the Commerce Secretary or uh, in France. I can tell you that most of the governments, the forward-thinking governments, are already starting to think. Two, their focus is twofold, Michael. One is how do I improve the, the service I give to my citizens? So a parking permit in England would take um, a long time and um, and you start to see the councils in Croydon, councils in Enfield, building permits, parking permits, and all these common things. The time being shrunk by an orders of magnitude and the amount of near instant responses for all of these things that they are according to their customer. So one is about, oh, to their citizens. So one is about the citizens, what kind of service can we provide to our citizens? And the second one that we are starting to see is about how do I position my citizens who will have displacement of their work in within the next half a decade to a decade? How do I start to position them to retool their skills so that they are not led, uh, so that we don't have a period of social unrest when they found them, find themselves without a job? And so that's the second focus. And the third focus we are starting to see of all these forward-thinking countries is how do we become a digital exporter? How do we actually thrive? This is a, in mathematical terms, there's a $14.3 trillion automation of digital workforce economy that is in, this is estimated by the McKinsey. That's the amount of, that's the industry that is emerging, the automation of knowledge workers, about $14.3 as estimated by McKinsey. And countries, forward-thinking countries, want to thrive in that. 
forward-thinking countries are thinking about how do I start to become a digital, cognitive, and autonomic exporter. So those are the threefold focus that we find of these different countries that have invited us to partake in their forum and agendas. I want to, uh, first off, thank the uh, 5,000 people who are watching CXO Talk right now. Well, at the moment, it's 4,024. We just, we just lost a few. Uh, and there is a tweet chat going on at this moment on Twitter using the hashtag CXO Talk. We're speaking with Chetan Dubey, who is the CEO and the founder of IPsoft. And Chetan, uh, we re- we've just been talking about what governments need to do and the, the public policy implications for this new world of artificial intelligence. And Wayne Anderson from Twitter asks the question, so what is the critical development that is needed in order to realize this positive vision that you've just described as opposed to the negative dystopian vision? Yeah, Wayne, that's that's a great point. I think we need to be able to run away from the Luddites or neo-Luddites. I think we need to be able to recognize the fact that machines are extremely efficient at mundane chores. And I tell you, there is a way, there is a risk of a new AI winter because the biggest risk factor we are finding in cognitive technologies is the adoption of right technology. So when you have seen this big market come onto the fore of, um, which I just described about 14.3 trillion and estimated by McKinsey, you see a rush of mushrooming of AI companies that claim to be uh, digital labor solutions. And I think you find there to be, uh, as, as uh, the digital officer of uh, BNB once said to me, he said, why do I have to kiss a thousand frogs? So you really need to be able to select the right technology where once you do select the right technology, you are finding yourself, you found a partner that is able to deliver equivalent or superior at much faster uh, turnaround times than what humans could do. So what, does hu- what do humans need to do? We need to look, 1800, we all know the equation. 90% of us were just farmers. Does history repeat itself? Today, 2% of North America. Feeds the rest 88%. So what happened to the 80? What what happened to the rest of 88%? I don't, are they unemployed? Well, I see them all gainfully employed. I see them shaping up uh, thought process on a global basis uh, as the Michael Krigsman. I see Wayne, you having these conversations about what is going to be the future. What this would all not be possible if technology had not come along and automated the mundane aspects of farming, which was subsistence at that point. And so we must ask ourselves the question, Wayne, does history repeat itself? Will technology be an enabler again? And I subscribe wholeheartedly to the fact that technology is going to be the enabler, but we must not try to resist it. We must not go try to burn down the looms, the fabric looms, and all the other things that we tried to do in the first industrial revolution. We must try and say, this time we are wiser. We know it's going to happen. We know that 45 to 55% efficiencies you can't walk away from. Why don't we try and prepare ourselves, retool our skills, get into higher forms of creative expression, do much more value creation for our companies. Insurance, I'll give you an example. Insurance, you should not be doing claims underwriting. You should not be doing the common, hey, I process claims day after day. 
oh, I, I pick up the phone and I do customer service or I'm the origination officer that does simple, I take an incoming query and I do hello to port and quote to cash for insurance. What would man do? Man is now freed to provide just-in-time insurance. You're going skiing. Your insurance profile changes. You're driving too fast. Your insurance profile changes. You just-in-time insurance dynamically adapting to the profile of the consumer is going to become the next big way as opposed to a, just a static rate being accorded to everybody. And this is only possible by creative thinkers like you. And that would only be possible if all the chores of like the common claims processing and common hello to code and code to cash processing is done by cognitive agents. Okay. So, and by the way, thank you for the compliment to me. It's, it's definitely misplaced, but, but I appreciate that. Uh, so, so we have now a couple of questions from Twitter that address a very important point on this, this issue of all of the benefits, or let's say achieving the benefits that AI can give us. So Janae Sharp says, number one, and, and I'll tell you both of these questions, these comments, because uh, they're, they're similar. So number one, uh, what are the barriers to adoption for people who don't understand cognitive technology? Uh, to whom this is this is just just completely alien, essentially. And then Arsalan Khan makes the comment, AI can shatter boundaries, but are people willing, and I'll say able, to absorb those changes and change rapidly enough? So how do we how do we incorporate this? How do we incorporate people who are non-technologists into this broader vision? That's very insightful again. I, I would say that first, the rate of change. In the first, we just talked about the first industrial age. In the first industrial age, the rate of change was limited by the production capacity. We were multiplying the power of muscle. One man, one cart. One steam engine, 100 carts. Two orders of magnitude improvement because we had multiplied the power of muscle. One man farming one field, a combined harvester farming 100 fields. A tractor. So it was, it was big orders of magnitude improvement, but it was still limited by the production time it took to be able to produce those steam engines and to be able to produce those combined harvesters and those tractors. And so that was a gating factor in time that allowed us to be able to say, well, this change is going to happen at this rate. This age, this cognitive revolution, and the thing that does scare me, actually, the pace of change, this is not a multiplier of brawn. This is a multiplier of brain. And that's an instant multiplier. You can take a digital agent and you can look at the largest, uh, one of the largest banking institutions with over 2 billion calls coming into their retail for credit cards. And you can say, boom, within a couple of months, I'm going to start shifting most of these over. And that is the part that scares me. And I think that's where such talks are critical for 
raising the awareness of man to this rate of change here. It's if you if you measure the as a mathematician and you would forgive my preoccupation with mathematics, I will tell you it's numbers wise. That first industrial revolution, about one and a half trillion in impact, if you, depending on which economist you subscribe to in net present value. And that was a spread over a period of like, let's say, 55 years. This change is happening a 14 trillion impact spread over a period of 10 years. 10 times the impact in one fifth the time gives you a 50-fold multiplier of change velocity in this. That's scary. That's why such forums that Michael has arranged are critical at raising the awareness of, of people, of companies, and of countries to be able to embrace and to be able to try and proactively move. Because if you don't proactively move, we will find ourselves caught on the wrong foot and scrambling. And that is going to be, that's the one thing that scares me because the rate of change is very, very fast. And it's classic. There's a, we start to see a digital Darwinistic curve emerging in the industry where the leading companies are having 45% more margin enhancement. By we have an interesting question from Twitter again that relates to this point of people not understanding those folks who who which is which is most of us really who don't understand AI or the implications of it and i think that understanding is unfolding but this one's interesting christian pescatore asks what would you advise to a ceo who has invested in chatbots rather than in cognitive technologies and therefore has now realized that the technology has fallen short. And I would phrase this another way. What would you advise to a uh, an enterprise buyer who's basically succumbed to the hype? There's a lot of vendor hype out there and has bought chatbots, say, say mimicking, uh, mimicking interaction or mimicking thought without actually uh, conducting thought. What do they do? What should that person do, that CEO? Nobody wanted to press 17, press 11 for this, press 13 for this. Nobody had the time for pressing. And you found yourself yelling, representative, operator, get me out of this maze, somebody who understands me, somebody who can service me, somebody who can solve my problem. You find yourself trying to get away from these chat agents or IVRs and looking for humans. What the industry did in a large measure in the AI community is that we put lipstick on that pig. And forgive my directness, we have put a thin layer of DNN classification, that deep neural network classification, whether it is by support vector machines. We take the input that a person is coming, saying in natural language, and we still try to bucket it into one of the 17 or not, except that now you have 4,000 buckets in the back. So if you're asking atomic simple questions, it works like it gives you the impression because of its horizontal sweep has really expanded to that that extent. It gives you the impression that you're really talking to an intelligent agent. Hey, how's the weather? Can you book me um, a flight? Can I get a hotel reservation? Can I go to Chanterelle, a French restaurant or um, 
what is the score of uh, the preseason game between Knicks and Nets? All of these things. Atomic questions. Administrative tasks. Underscore. Administrative tasks. Less than one and a half percent of your overall costs as the CEO Christian. 35% of your costs are knowledge worker costs. Knowledge worker that is doing mortgage processing. In England, you will see it is about SA302. Are you dependent? Are you self-employed? If you are dependent, do you have a 15% ownership or less? And if you have a 15% ownership, is your, is your income level in, increasing or decreasing over the last two years? Based on that, I'm going to assess your actuarial, your risk profile, and I will assess how much amount of mortgage can I give you. Can a secretary provide you these? Completely no. This one has to make that distinction. Knowledge worker is 35% of your payroll cost. One and a half percent is the administrative. And that administrative task definitely get the dime a dozen chatbots, as you said. You can you will have 20 different phones, you will have 20 different chatbots. Go pick up anyone, and it'll be able to do all the chores for you, order pizzas for you. But if you want the actuarial analysis done for your mortgage, please do not expect your administrative assistant to do that for you because you'll be woefully dissatisfied. So now the question becomes, you, and, and this is what we are finding, Christian, you're not alone. The right selection of right technology is the biggest risk factor amongst all the CEOs that we are encountering in the industry. Because, and I told you, even your body by and the BNP, the big assertion was, why do I have to kiss a thousand frogs before I can find a real solution that can be an intelligent agent mimicking a knowledge worker? So you must ask questions of your claimed chatbot solution. You must ask, can it read? Put it to the test of a 10-year-old. Can it read a standard operating procedure for your company? Can it understand what it has read? Can it solve problems on the basis of what it has read? And can it have an empathetic connection to my customer on the basis of what it has read? Can it actually deliver to me net promoter scores that are positive? Please switch me to a chatbot, said nobody ever. We need to go to an intelligent agent. If you are in chatbot land, the only advice I can submit to you, and please forgive my directness, abandon it. It's a dead-end street. You're never going to get your customer value creation there. You need an intelligent agent that mimics human behavior, that provides human-like services. Your customers are not that foolish. They expect human-like services. They expect context switching. They expect episodic event-based learning. They expect you to semantically understand what is being said. So you forgive me for belaboring it, the point, but I think it is a very brilliant question that needed elaborate understanding. Okay, this is the part of the show where we have literally three minutes left, and I have about 20 questions left. So I'm going to ask you uh, just to respond now to a few different things. Uh, 
in sort of 140 character tweet by chunks. I mean, literally, we've got about three minutes. And I'll just mention uh, that uh, my friend Anurag Harsh, who is one of the uh, the bigwigs over at uh, Ziff Davis, has sent a note on Twitter to Dan Costa, who is the editor in chief of PC Magazine, saying, "Hey, we need to have this uh, Amelia over for a demo." So, I, so that's sounds pretty interesting. Anyway, so very, 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 very quickly now, uh, in in a sentence, what advice do you have to to business people? I mean, you just kind of said it, but how do you buy AI? How do you see through the hype? Literally in like you know ten seconds. <laughs> Measure it against a human agent. Put a human agent, and the same kind of questions you ask of the human agent, ask of your AI agent. And if it is not able to do context switching and not able to understand, don't expect, don't be fooled by a canned demo. What do you say to employers who are looking at this and they're afraid that their contact center employees are going to have a rebellion? There's no way out. This is coming, it's here, and it's going to. Time, tide, and technology will wait for no one. AI has achieved maturity where it can mimic human intelligence. In, in particularly, uh, this is Ziff Davis editor. Uh, I credit him for the insight. Talk to Amelia, and you will see it can mimic human intelligence. We put her on stage against a human, and people could not discern. Five hundred and sixty CEOs and CIOs could not discern between Amelia and her lookalike, Lauren Hayes. That's it is coming. So prepare for it, embrace it, embrace the change, and thrive in this new world. And my last question, boy, we have a minute, but I mean, we could go on for another hour. Uh, my last question is, the you, you mentioned effective computing, uh, compassion, empathy, emotion. What's the next frontier with that and the time frame associated with it? I'm convinced in the next nine years, Michael, we will pass somebody in the hallway and we will not be able to tell if it's a human or an Android. Um, how is it going to be benefiting? I can tell you the number of adult diapers sold in Japan exceeded the number of baby diapers sold in Japan in the last three years. And that here's a classic example where having companion robots that really understand you, not just give you canned responses of like, gotta gotta gozaimasu and thank you and this thing, but actually can understand you has become a big need in an aging population such as Japan. Robots are our friends. They will take care. They're the most faithful servants man has known. They will take care of all the crud so that we can explore what you talked about, Musk and other planets, and we can stretch our horizons to where man has never gone before. And that will only be made possible by us extending our creative expression from the 15%, which is currently bottlenecked, to much further horizons made possible by artificial intelligence solutions that deliver such value. Well... On that note, robots are our friends. We're, there's still more questions coming in on Twitter, and to everybody on Twitter who's asking that we didn't get your question, my apologies. We have been speaking with Chetan Dubey, who is the CEO of IPsoft. And boy, this time has gone by fast. One of the most interesting CXO talks that, uh, that we've done. Chetan, thank you so much for taking your time to be here with us today. The privilege was mine. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to your audience. Everybody, thanks so much for watching. Go to cxotalk.com slash episodes to see what's coming up. Be sure to like us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe on YouTube because it's just a great thing to do. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day and have a great weekend. Bye-bye.